Rome. And I could summarize my message this morning. I hesitate to do that because there would be no reason to stay. But that's okay. I could summarize it this way. If God commissions you to take his message to a pagan, idolatrous nation, avoid the sea. Stay away from boats. And I'm not even talking about Paul, at least not yet. Paul is certainly a prophet of sorts. From the moment he turned to follow Jesus, his life was about not how he would settle comfortably in the suburbs of Jerusalem, expanding his tent-making business, raising a family he could show off at church every Sunday, and in the words of John Piper, dropping dimes from the windows of his SUV into other people's dreams. But it was about how much he must suffer to take God's message, his good news, to people unlike him, to people who are largely ignorant of Paul's culture and of the God Paul worships. But I'm not talking about Paul yet. You might recall another prophet tasked with bringing a message from the Lord to an oppressive, pagan, idolatrous nation. This prophet heads to the closest harbor and buys a one-way ticket to get as far away from the Lord as he could. In response, God sends a powerful storm, all because of Jonah's disobedience. And it puts everyone on the boat at risk, not just Jonah. And while Jonah's napping, unconcerned for the welfare of anyone, the crew of the boat starts throwing everything overboard, right, to make the ship lighter. Jonah finally confesses to the crew. Of course, he confesses after the casting of lots pointed to him that it was his fault. He says to them, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. The crew respond not by asking Jonah to pray to his God who made the sea, but by exclaiming, what have you done? You see, Jonah had previously told them that he was trying to escape from the Lord, this God who made the sea. They knew Jonah was running from a God, but they didn't know which God. They didn't know the God of whom Jonah spoke. But now they know, and they know that this is all Jonah's fault. Well, they come to a mutual agreement of sorts to throw Jonah overboard. Once they do, the sea stops raging. The sea itself, of course, we know it's the God who made the sea, but the sea itself has declared Jonah guilty. Now, I have a question for you to think about. What if Jonah had boarded that boat... Instead, out of disobedience, out of obedience. What if he had boarded that ship as an act of chasing after God's plan, rather than running away from God's plan? How would his sailing experience have been different? Now, 
there's a minor detail here that I want you to ignore, but I'm going to tell you to ignore it so that you can probably just think about it instead of ignoring it. Jonah was called to go to Nineveh, which was east of Israel in modern-day Iraq. There would have been no reason for him to board a boat at all to get over there. But ignore that detail. Imagine with me. Jonah gets on a ship chasing after God's plan, pursuing God's promise and God's passion for people. It would have been smooth sailing, right? Anyone been on a cruise? Once before we had kids and when we lived like 10 blocks from the cruise terminal. What year? I don't know what year that was. 2002 or three, maybe. Um, midnight buffets. Towels folded into the shape of zoo animals put on your bed every day. Prime rib, shuffleboard, a day at the spa, maybe just a good novel. This is the way we think, isn't it? Disobedience brings storms, but obedience brings calm, and it brings ease, and it brings comfort, and it brings blessing. It's only through the storm that Jonah is saved, that Jonah is rescued. But the storm's not really his problem. Jonah has a hard and a calloused heart. He underestimates both his sin and the limits of God's compassion for a people that Jonah despises. But God saves Jonah. It takes three days and nights in a living tomb and a strange but powerful encounter with God in a living parable that God rescues Jonah. In Acts 27, we're going to hear about a man, Paul, of course, who gets on a boat because he has obeyed God, because he's been faithful to God's calling, because he is committed to fulfilling his commission, a commission that involves bringing God's message to Israel's enemies, the Gentiles, to Rome. We've been following God's promise through Paul since his conversion, where Ananias, if you remember, tells Paul how much he must suffer and taking the gospel to the Gentiles. God's promise is fulfilled through peril and through pain, through storms, next week through snakes. As I read this story, I want us to think about not only what we learn about the faithfulness of God, but also about the nature of salvation. What does it mean to be saved or to be rescued? So here we are in Acts 27. When it was decided we would sail to Italy, they handed over Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. We went on board a ship from Adramidium. When you come to words that you don't know how to pronounce, just say them quickly. that was about to sail to various ports along the coast of the province of Asia and put out to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius, treating Paul kindly, allowed him to go to his friends so they could provide him with what he needed. 
From there we put out to sea and sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. After we had sailed across the open sea off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we put in at Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found a ship from Alexandria, sailing, sailing for Italy, and he put us aboard it. We sailed slowly for many days and arrived with difficulty off Sinaitis. Because the wind prevented us from going any farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone. With difficulty, we sailed along the coast of Crete and came to a place called Fair Havens that was near the town of Lycia. Verse 9. Since considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them, Men, I can see the voyage is going to end in disaster and great loss not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion was more convinced by the captain and the ship's owner than by what Paul said. Because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea, to put out to sea from there. They hoped that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. When a gentle south wind sprang up, they thought they could carry out their purpose. So they weighed anchor and sailed close along the coast of Crete. Not long after this, a hurricane-force wind, called the Northeaster, blew down from the island. When the ship was caught in it and could not head into it, the wind, and could not head into the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. As we ran under the lee of a small island called Kata, we were able with difficulty to get the ship's boat under control. After the crew had hoisted it aboard, they used supports to undergird the ship. Fearing they would run aground on Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor, thus letting themselves be driven along. The next day, because we were violently battered by the storm, they began throwing the cargo overboard. And on the third day, they threw the ship's gear overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and a violent storm continued to batter us, we finally abandoned all hope of being saved. Since many of them had no desire to eat, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not put out to sea from Crete, thus avoiding this damage and loss. And now I advise you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship will be lost. For last night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve came to me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and God has graciously granted you the safety of all who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will be just as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, while we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were approaching some land. They took soundings and found the water was 20 fathoms deep. When they had sailed a little further, they took soundings again and found that it was 15 fathoms deep. 
Because they were afraid that we would run aground on the rocky coast, they threw out four anchors from the stern and wished for day to appear. Then when the sailors tried to escape from the ship and were lowering the ship's boat into the sea, pretending that they were going to put out anchors from the bow, Paul called to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut the ropes of the ship's boat and let it drift away. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day you have been in suspense and have gone without food. You have eaten nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for this is important for your survival. For not one of you will lose a hair from his head. After he said this, Paul took bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all, broke it, and began to eat. So all of them were encouraged and took food themselves. We were in all 276 persons on the ship. When they had eaten enough to be satisfied, they lightened the ship by throwing the wheat into the sea. Verse 39. When day came, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. So they slipped the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the linkage that bound the steering oars together. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and steered toward the beach. But they encountered a patch of cross currents and ran the ship aground. The bow stuck fast and could not be moved, but the stern was being broken up by the force of the waves. Now the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners so that none of them would escape by swimming away. But the centurion, wanting to save Paul's life, prevented them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest were to follow, some on planks and some on pieces of the ship. And in this way, all were brought safely to land. So in chapter 27, we have moved from Paul in the courtroom, from Paul as an object of curiosity of Festus and his friends, to Paul as cargo, along with other prisoners, as they begin their voyage to Rome. The man in charge of delivering Paul and the prisoners to Rome is Julius, one of only two people named in this chapter besides Paul. In fact, we get about 16 place names, but only three human names, Paul, Aristarchus, Paul's friend, and Julius, the centurion. Now, Luke is not named, but is present as we see the return to the we perspective in this narrative. Maybe you noticed that. But I think it's important that Julius is named. I'm going to tell you why a little later on. But for now, I want us to look at Paul's situation. In the previous five chapters, we find Paul mostly in the courtroom, formally or informally. The object of charges against him, and then with the opportunity to defend himself. He's on trial in reference to laws and to regulations. 
But now as Paul boards a ship and sets sail for Rome, he's entered a different kind of courtroom where from the perspective of people, nature will be the judge, the jury, and perhaps the executioner. At least in the courtroom, Paul has a chance. There is some order to things. And even when that order turns to chaos, Paul is rescued by Rome. Now, under Rome, there are laws and there are processes and procedures. And like today, they were not always fair. They weren't always applied in a way that's just, in a way that's equal. But at the very least, you could say that some act or some decision by the court was unlawful. People today disagree about how the U.S. Constitution should be interpreted and applied, but at least we can say that something is unconstitutional. Well, not everyone might, will agree with us, but at least there is some kind of standard by which we can make a comparison and say this is unlawful, this is unconstitutional. The courtroom of the seas, however, does not afford that kind of convenience, that kind of privilege. In the storm, every objection is overruled and every appeal is denied. Just ask Jonah. Rescue from the storm only comes through a fierce baptism and rebirth from a fish puking you out onto dry land. But Paul is not like Jonah at all. In fact, if Luke is intentionally comparing Paul and Jonah, he's saying Paul is the anti-Jonah. Paul does not underestimate his own sinfulness, his own unworthiness. He frequently says things like, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. Paul understands that even the virtues and achievements he had in Judaism, which would have been exceedingly profitable among his Jewish peers, were actually, in comparison to the surpassing value of knowing Christ, those things were liabilities. He doesn't say they're just nothing. He says they're actually loss. Neither does Paul underestimate God's compassion for the oppressive outsiders, the Gentiles, for Rome. Paul understands that the hope and fulfillment of Israel is also the hope for the world, for all kinds of people, from all kinds of nations. Paul is not running away. Paul is pressing on. He's pursuing God's promise and he's pursuing God's purpose. Yet the storm rages. It rages not just for Paul, but also for the other 275 souls on board. Sailors and soldiers, slaves and free, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, we could say that storms happen. We could say that they just happen. 
Maybe it's a consequence of the curse of sin on creation, going back to Adam and Eve. We could try to see things from a different perspective. We could try to look at the positive side of storms, right? Storms can sometimes restore and reshape things for the long-term benefit. Storms can drop a new washing machine in your front yard. Good news for you. Bad news for its original owner. There's a way of seeing things, however, I think, that doesn't depend on us trying to decide if the storm is caused by someone's sinfulness or just by the fallen creation or some other reason that we just can't figure out. And it's this. Don't waste the storm. That's the approach. Don't waste the storm. Maybe you want to spend time figuring out where it's coming from and why it's coming at all. And maybe you'll know and maybe you won't know. And maybe you'll waste a lot of time thinking you know when you really don't know. I don't know. But regardless of the why of the storm, I can say to you, don't waste the storm. This entire, this entire chapter can be outlined by the three times that Paul intervenes in this story. The voyage begins with difficulty. There is slow sailing. This was the time of year where you wanted to be off the waters. They didn't want to sail from about October to April. That was the stormy season. And they're in a really small window to make it to Rome. Slow sailing meant that they were going to end up on the seas during the stormy season. They were so delayed, in fact, that they were going to have to stop for the winter. They dock in this place called Fair Havens, which sounds like a funeral home or a golf course or something. You know, Fair Havens Country Club, Fair Havens Funeral Home. The name of it cracked me up a little bit. I don't know why. And they're forced to make a decision. They're forced to decide. If they wait out the winter there, and here's the issue. If they wait out the winter there, because of the direction, because of the prevailing winds and rain, their cargo, the grain, will be ruined. It will get wet. They won't be able to protect it. But if they just go another 50 miles or so to Phoenix, they'll be able to protect their cargo against the rain over the winter. And this brings Paul's first attempt at an, at an intervention. He warns them that this 50-mile voyage will end in disaster. Now, did Paul receive some kind of revelation from the Lord about this? I don't know. Luke doesn't tell us. It seems to be that Paul is just speaking out of experience that he's speaking from wisdom and because he cares about the souls of everyone on board. Julius, however, and he seems to have authority here. He seems to have some kind of decision-making authority because he listens to Paul, he listens to the ship's captain and the ship's owner, and it seems like he gets to make the decision, perhaps because he represents Rome. So he listens to Paul and to the captain and to the owner, 
And Julius sides with the powerful. Julius decides with the profitable. Julius decides with what's popular. So they ignore Paul's warning and they head for Phoenix. The decision to follow power, profit, and popularity is rewarded initially by a gentle south wind. You're wrong, Paul. This is great. We've got a gentle south wind. But as soon as they kind of turn the corner, the storm comes. A hurricane-force wind called a northeaster that sweeps down the mountains of Crete out into the sea, and it blows them far, far away. Having ignored Paul's advice, they had to try to save themselves. They haul in the lifeboat. They use ropes to gird the hull of the ship to keep it intact. They lower the anchors or maybe the sails. There's a lot of words in this text that we don't know exactly what they mean. They're like really probably specific um, words related to boats and sailing and stuff. So some of these words, are, it's the only time they appear in the New Testament. Some of these place names too. So whether it's the anchors or the sails they lower, we're not sure, but it's an attempt to slow down. Then they start getting rid of the cargo and they throw off the tackle or the gear. They're losing their profits, right? They're now losing their profits, which is what they wanted to avoid. But more importantly, they've lost their way. There's no sun. There's no stars. There's no hope. The relentless storm even has Luke among those abandoning hope. Notice in verse 20, we, he says, we finally abandon all hope of being saved. So Paul intervenes a second time. Hopelessness plus seasickness equals no appetite. Paul stands up and tell them, tells them that they should have listened to him. It is a kind of I told you so moment. But Paul doesn't leave with I told you so. He adds this, and now I advise you to keep your courage, to cheer up. The ship will go down, but none of you will. The ship will be lost, but not you. And Paul knows this because an angel the night before told him. The angel tells Paul that he must stand before Caesar. It is divinely necessary that Paul stand before Caesar. As a result, those with him will get the same protection that he does. Well, now they're nearing land, they think. They can't see, but they know that their depth is decreasing. Trying to keep the ship from running aground, they lower the anchors. And while doing this, some of the sailors try to escape on a lifeboat. Paul tells Julius and his men, Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut away the lifeboat. Hopelessness still seems to prevail in spite of Paul's message. Paul intervenes a third time in a strange way. It's almost dawn, we're told, and Paul urges them to eat. It's almost as if Paul is saying, you're going to survive the storm, so don't die from starvation. 
Then in verse 35, Paul takes bread. He gives thanks to God. He breaks the bread and he eats. And this encourages others to do the same. Paul's meal is a sign of hope and of confidence. Well, the next day they see land. They see a bay. They see a beach. And they decide to try to run the ship aground. But it gets stuck. With the ship breaking up, the soldiers plan to kill the prisoners. So they won't be killed for letting the prisoners escape. But notice here, Julius intervenes and saves the lives of the prisoners, saving Paul's life. Some swim, some float, but they all make it safely to land. Now, Paul faithfully endures another storm, this time a literal storm, because he understands the faithfulness of God to keep his promise. And this is a theme we've talked about over and over through Acts. I'm not going to talk about it as much today. The storm is a threat to the promise. The storm opposes God's plan, but it cannot defeat God's promise and God's plan. And yes, Paul is as faithful as Jonah was not. But Paul's faithfulness doesn't mean that he gets a cruise with all-you-can-eat shrimp cocktail and an Elvis impersonator. He gets a storm, but he doesn't waste the storm. He doesn't lose hope. He encourages those around him to hope as well. And when they don't listen, he continues to warn them and he continues to encourage them. We can learn a lot from Paul in this story. But there's really no new revelations about Paul's character. It's as if Luke has decided, I've got not much left to prove about Paul. Paul acts as we would expect him to, based on what we know about him. One of Luke's purposes is certainly to show that even in the court of nature, Paul is declared innocent. He survives, and those around him survive the chaos of the seas. And I've said it before, but I'll say it again. Be like Paul, as you see Paul being like Jesus. Let Paul's resurrection hope and his confidence in the purpose and the promise of God be your resurrection hope and your confidence in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your pain and of your peril. But there's more here. I pointed out earlier that other than Paul, Aristarchus, and the implied identification of Luke, Julius is the only other person named in this story. Luke presents Julius as a very decent man, a very kind man, who likes, who likes Paul. He allows Paul to visit his friends when they land at Sidon so that Paul can receive provisions. We don't know the why of his kindness toward Paul, but he is. He's kind and he's decent. And while prisoners on a ship were typically kept chained up below deck, it appears that Paul has some freedom on the ship. Julius is decent. He is kind. He's even kind to Christians. But his kindness and his goodness can't save him. Paul warns him. Paul warns him of the danger coming upon him. 
But Julius, kind and decent Julius, ignores Paul, ignores God's messenger, and instead listens to power, listens to profit, listens to popularity. Kind and decent Julius values reputation and recognition over salvation and rescue and the preservation of souls. Now, I've made a leap here, a small one, I think. I've turned kind and decent Julius into kind and decent people whose souls are in danger because they believe in prophet with an F rather than believing the prophet with the PH. And I don't make that leap easily. In fact, if you ever hear me preach about Jesus calming the storm, you will never hear me make the leap from the physical storm that Jesus calms to the storms of life. Because I kind of think that's a wrong interpretation of that story. But there are so many references in this chapter to salvation and to rescue and to life and to death and to loss. So many parallels to the story of Jonah that I think the leap is safe. God knows how to save you. God has a plan to preserve your souls. He wants to save the Juliuses. God wants to save the genuinely good and decent people, as far as it goes, but who, when forced to choose between God's message and the cares and concerns of the culture, choose wrongly. But notice he does not give up on the Juliuses. When all hope is lost, when there is no sun, no stars, when there's no way to even know how far off course you have gone, I mean, Julius has gone. I mean, you have gone. God speaks again. If you follow, if you obey what you hear from him, you might very well lose it all, whatever it is, but you will gain your soul. You will gain your life. You will gain true life. You will gain eternal life. I think Julius listens the second time. I think he finally believes Paul. He sees Paul's hope and his confidence in this Thanksgiving meal that Paul has. And a short time later, the boat is crashed and it's breaking apart and the soldiers want to kill the prisoner, a wise act of self-preservation, humanly speaking. But Julius takes a risk. Julius intervenes. Julius becomes an agent of God in this story, protecting the promise that Paul will be a witness to King Jesus in Rome. Julius finally chooses against power and against profit and against popularity in his intervention to save the prisoners. I'm by no means saying that Julius becomes a follower of the way. He just literally, physically rescues Paul and the prisoners. But I think he gives us a picture of what allegiance to King Jesus means. It means when you hear God's message, 
And when you believe God's message, it means sacrificing. It means putting your life and your livelihood at risk. It means crawling up on that altar, as Paul tells us in Romans 12, crawling up on that altar over and over and offering your whole self, not just an hour and a half on Sunday, to God as a living sacrifice. Another beautiful image in this story is at the very end. We're told that he, I think it's Julius, he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land, and the rest were to follow, some on planks and some on pieces of the ship. And in this way, all were brought safely to land. Now, Luke's not teaching some kind of universalism in Luke 27 that everyone, even people who don't want to be saved, will be saved. But in this story, everyone ends up listening and believing and obeying the warnings of Paul. And what I see here that resembles God's kingdom so beautifully is that all kinds of people were saved in this story. Paul, Luke, Aristarchus were saved. Kind and decent Julius was saved. Also on board the boat, there had to have been, we know there were other soldiers. There would have had to have been slaves, boat owners, boat captains, men and women from every tribe and language, people and nation. If you are a follower of the way, if you are a Christian, don't waste your storm. How you weather it will be a witness to the Juliuses in your life. And when your Juliuses don't listen, do not give up on them. Because God, the God you worship, the God you serve, has not given up on them. If you hear this story and you more relate to Julius, if you think of yourself as a kind and decent person, but one who tends to favor profit and power and popularity, don't waste your storm. <clears throat> God is determined and he is speaking to you. Pursuing power, profit, and popularity is putting your very soul at risk. There is resurrection hope for you. Listen, hear, and believe. And maybe you're no Paul and maybe you're no Julius. You're neither kind nor decent. Maybe. But you're still on this sinking ship. You can throw overboard everything you can get your hands on but you're still drifting in the dark. Maybe you're miles from land, or maybe you're just meters from land. But in the darkness, you'll never know. But know this, that God has provided a rescuer for you. He wants to fill you like the bread that Paul broke on the ship filled him. The God that Paul thanked is the God of the land and the sea, the God who provides salvation, becoming like those that he desires to save. He knows you. 
He knows where you are. And he has felt the weight of your guilt and sin because he bore it on the cross. So let it go and let him give you rest. Don't waste your storm. Pray with me. Father, as we endure difficulties, as we go through our own unique pain and peril, individually, as well as uh, as your body here in Port Lyons, Lord, help our faithfulness. Help our refusal to despair, our refusal to lose all hope. Be a witness to those around us that we serve a God whose son Jesus not only died for us, but was also raised from the dead. And if we serve a God who can bring life from death, then we also serve a God who can turn weakness into strength. Lord, and for the Juliuses here this morning, either here in person or ones that we know, um, people in our lives who are good and decent people but on a sinking ship, remind us not to give up. Remind us to continue speaking your good news into their lives, that they might turn and follow you, that they might become agents of salvation for others. Father, and help us to be a people who look forward to that day and to try to model that day in our church, that it's made up of men and women, rich and poor, slave and free, Jew and Greek, powerful and powerless, important and unknown. Lord, may this church continue to grow into that kind of church that resembles the very essence of what your kingdom one day will look like. Lord, make it come on earth as it is in heaven. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that it's only because of the death of your son on the cross and only because you've told us about it that we can accomplish any of this. So move us to tell others. In Jesus' name we ask this, amen.